The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Uh, it was a while ago now, I was filling up the car with petrol and uh, there was a young guy at the same service station uh, filling up a combi. And um, kind of young, and I guess more kind of the hippie than the hipster kind of surfer. And on the back of the combi was a sticker that said, Jesus. And I'm kind of, I'm in the business, so I was just curious. And I walked up just close enough to see what it was. And uh, where are we going here? This is what it said. Jesus, save us from your followers. <laughs> now, my guess is if you follow Jesus or if you don't, You've felt that one way or the other. Sometimes it... Pl- yeah. I guess what it shows is you can kind of think Christians drive you mad, and I, believe me, I can understand that, and the church, etc., etc., but still a respect for the person of Jesus. Right? So we still hold Jesus in great, uh, great honour. Uh, in fact, even those who are really critical of, say, religion, it's unusual for them to be critical of the person of Jesus. Um, sometimes people will make up a kind of a plastic version of their own Jesus uh, and be positive, but very rare to hear even the hardcore atheist criticise Jesus himself. Um, but this is what I mean about kind of a plastic version of Jesus. So in an interview with the Guardian newspaper in the UK, Dr Richard Dawkins said, somebody as intelligent as Jesus would have been an atheist if he'd known what we know today. <laughs> Perhaps that says more about... Uh, um, Richard Dawkins that it does about Jesus, but, uh, well... Anyway, today, we've come to the topic, uh, the idea of today, of finally someone to inspire me. Uh, I looked up what uh, inspire means uh, in the Oxford Dictionary. It says, uh, to fill someone with the urge or ability to do or feel something. To fill someone with the urge or ability to feel or do something, especially to do something creative. It's the idea of motivation, the idea of kind of lift your head and help you keep going. So today I wanted to talk to you about three things. Um, and wait, if you've been coming to Sam Chan's series, uh, today I wanted to talk to you about three things, all right? If you've been here, you'll, underst- you'll understand. Uh, three things, and you see on the outline there. Uh, the influence of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, and the courage of Jesus. In the context of inspiration. Okay, let's talk about the influence of Jesus. So I'll have to be brief, but just give you a very quick overview. There's a simple way, in some ways, in the modern world to check just how influential someone is, how much they're on people's minds, and that would be, let's check for Google hits. So we put, I thought of the most famous names that I could get, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Dial in Arnold Schwarzenegger into Google and you get 41, I'm oh, sorry, 41 million hits, Okay. <laughs> Barack Obama, the United States President, 229 million hits. Let's think of someone else uh, really famous. Muhammad, the prophet, 231 million hits. Now next, on 312, 312 million hits, okay, starts with J. Anyone want to guess? Ah, you're all too clever. Jennifer Lawrence. (laughs) 312. uh, Jennifer Lawrence outranks the American president by nearly 100 million hits. And, and of course, you go to Jesus, and Jesus is double the nearest person that I can find still. 20 centuries later, 624 million. 
Jesus has had massive, we go from kind of the, the superficial and trivial, Jesus has had a massive influence on the Western world. Um, there's any number of different books out there about that. So this one, uh, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born by James Kennedy. Uh, it's an interesting book. He's got lots of information. If I could say, uh, with apologies to my brother uh, Russ, who's from the USA, this book suffers a little bit from the World Series syndrome, and that is when the Americans hold the World Series, they forget that like there's maybe the rest of the world as well. So this book's about America. Um, if you're a regular at City Bible Forum, you've heard me talk about Rodney Stark uh, many times, uh, an, an American professor from Baylor University in Texas, brilliant writer. I don't know if Professor Stark's a Christian or not, can't tell from how he writes. Uh, for the glory of God, as he looks back, he talks about, particularly about... It was the Christian worldview, the worldview that Jesus gave us that led to the rise of science and the growth in the Western world in terms of scientific endeavour, etc., for the glory of God. And then you've got the victory of reason, where he goes back again and looks how Christianity led to freedom, namely democracy, capitalism, the creation of wealth. Uh, Why is it the Western world is as successful uh, as it is? Now, they are interesting books. The one that I'm reading at the moment, and I've only got a third of the way through this. Uh, my wife, Kathy, will be so glad when I'm finished because I'm telling her about it every day. Uh, the book that made your world. Uh, Vishal, and I don't know how to say this man's name exactly, Mangalwadi, uh, is a Hindu man, grew up in India and became a Christian at university. What's brilliant about this is not only that this man's the smartest guy in the room in terms of what he's read, because he's one step removed from the Western world and he's writing to a Western audience, you see this, uh, how the Bible created the soul of the Western civilization. because he's writing to the we- uh, about the Western world and yet kind of one step removed, he can see how clearly the Bible and the central character of the Bible, of course, Jesus, created the Western world. In terms of, he goes through a whole lot of things like the value of humanity, uh, compassion, philanthropy, the value of rationality, logic, the growth of technology, which is not the same thing as he covers in the growth of science. Um, And so medicine, universities, morality, the fight against corruption, the creation of wealth, liberty, and the list goes on. If you're taking notes, if you want to read, it's about 400 pages, but it's it's a beauty. Okay? Okay. now, you go from the mega, or the, perhaps a better, the meta, the huge influence. Let's think about the, the, the personal. When you come to the person of Jesus, the New Testament writers make the uh, remarkable claim that in the person of Jesus, God stepped into our world. God is born as a, as a baby in a, in a manger. Um, you... You may not agree that the New Testament writers are correct about that, but it's obvious that that's what they're saying. And there might be questions later on about how you know that. I think it's just crystal clear. The New Testament, the Bible is claiming God became one of us. Now, as the Creator steps into our world, Jesus shows us God, tells us how to relate to God, teaches us about God. But at the same time, the New Testament shows us Jesus as truly, fully, fundamentally human as human as you and me. And I I don't know whether you've read the Gospels. I hope I might motivate you to do that. Um, You see Jesus get tired, hungry, thirsty, sleepy, full of joy. He weeps at the funeral at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. He's, He's as human as you and me. And it's interesting, I think, when you understand that it's the humanity of Jesus 
that grabs my heart in terms of inspiration. What do I know? You've seen your outline there. Um, so now we come to the humanity of Jesus. You see in the way that Jesus treated people. I think it's, it's uh, well, it's inspirational. So, for example, I've got there Jesus and the big people. Uh, as someone who's been in a couple of uh, debates about uh, Christianity, very hard to keep your nerve and stay cool and think clearly in a debate. You know, handshake and get all nervous. And Jesus debates the religious leaders of his country, you know, the learned scholars. He's only 30-something. Debates them. And it's not just if he makes a mistake, he'll take a beating on social media. And it's not just his Twitter followers who'll give it to him. They will take him out and kill him. Death is on the line. And Jesus debates with these men who are so learned and to the point where there's silence and they walk away with a tail between their legs. I have a little kind of, I guess, a fantasy. You might say I need to get a life, but um, <laughs> a bit of a fantasy about Jesus being on Q&A uh, on the ABC. And I, I just think, wouldn't it be great to have him there because I tell you what would happen eventually, there would be silence as Jesus shows people's hearts and motives and they, he's answered them. Now, there's, there's a way in which the Jesus and the, and the, the big people, that, that shows. But, you know, even more, I think what shows the character of Jesus is Jesus and the little people, the, the unimportant people. Um, as a boy growing up, my, uh, my boyhood hero was a man called... Does anyone know who that is? It's Jack Gibson. Now, some of you won't know him. Some, just humour the speaker, would you? If you know who Jack Gibson is or you've heard of him, do you want to just kind of nod, hand up, kind of... Hey, OK, there's a third of you, maybe. Jack Gibson was the uh, super coach of the, rugby, of the rugby league world, 70s, 80s, even into the 90s. Uh, he coached eastern suburbs, uh, Parramatta, State of Origin, Cronulla... Uh, there he is with Arthur Beetson, Arthur Beetson, another rugby league legend when I was a boy. Uh, there's Peter Sterling. You probably won't recognise Peter Sterling. He's on the footy show now. He's got my haircut. Okay. Um, so he's better looking now, but uh, he was a fantastic rugby league player. There's Big Jack. And then um, eventually they published a book of uh, Jack Gibson's funny sayings. So um, Jack Gibson said of the Cronulla rugby league team, waiting for Cronulla to win a premiership is like leaving the porch light on for Harold Holt. Um, sorry, you'll think about it. Other things he'd say, things like hospitality is making people feel at home when you wish they were. Anyway, I've thought about that one too. <laughs> In the early 90s, I, I was invited to, given the job of becoming the chaplain at the Eastern Suburbs Rugby League team, uh, for the Eastern Suburbs Rugby League team. And, I don't know, being the chaplain means you're kind of uh, the bottom of the food chain. You put 50 rugby league players packed into a dressing room for a team meeting and the testosterone is so thick you kind of, you know, you could cut it with a knife. And I'm just kind of the little baldy-headed kind of chaplain sitting there. Oh, it's me. And a lot of the players would just ignore me. They didn't kind of know what to do with me. I just, I'm a nobody. And I remember the time that I met Jack Gibson. So I'm about to, I'm pretty nervous. I was about to meet, I knew I'd meet him somewhere, my boyhood hero, and I'm in Henson Park in the dressing rooms over in Marrickville. And he was in, inside a room, inside the kitchen, and he's walked to the door and there's a step up into the kitchen. And I'm on the bottom of the step and he's at the top and he kind of filled the doorway. He's about the size of your average bear he was. He's a big man. And um, he's kind of stopped and we've placed each other. And he said, 
Mm-hmm. Who, who are you? And I said, well, uh, Jack, I'm the, uh, I'm the, the new chaplain. And he looked down at me, deadpan face. He said, well, the last bloke didn't get too many scalps around here. <laughs> and then he smiled and gave me a wink. He said, welcome. And what he did over the next two years was to treat me like royalty. He talked to me. He welcomed me. He gave me a cheque for $1,000 once to pass it, like pass it on to my church to help cover my time. He even came to a men's dinner that I invited him to. Now, back in the 90s, who are you bringing to the men's dinner? Jack Gibson. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what what does that show about him? What does it show about him? It shows he was a big man. Because you can judge the size of a person by how they treat the little people. The little people who can't do anything for you. Now, don't you see that in the life of Jesus? That he reaches out and and touches a leper. That in Luke chapter 7, he, he's got time, he, he steps up to defend the woman who's weeping in front of him and everyone else is critical of her. I don't know whether she's a prostitute or, but she's certainly on the edge of polite society. He's got time to stop the crowds for the, the sick woman who touched him. He's got time for little children who've got no status. He stops a huge procession of people to have time to bring a beggar to listen to him. So much so, uh, this man, Vishal Mangawati, says in his book that Jesus changed the way that the Western world perceives what it means to be a hero. We take it for granted. We're myopic. We don't see this anymore. But uh, in the ancient world, well, let me read you what he says as he talks about the classical hero, namely the the hero from uh, uh, ancient Rome or ancient Greece. He says this. Classical heroism, Roman or Greek, clashed with the Bible because while the former valued power, Christ's heroism prized truth. Other kingdoms fostered heroic deeds by cultivating racial or geographic or linguistic or religious hatred. Jesus made love the supreme value of the kingdom of God. This love was not sentimentalism. It went beyond loving one's neighbour as oneself. Its supreme manifestation was the cross, sacrificing oneself for others, including one's enemies. Jesus' heroism replaced brutality with love, pride with meekness and domination over others with self-sacrificing service. He exemplified this when he humbled himself, took a basin of water and a servant's towel and started washing his disciples' feet. This, he said, is what the kingdom of God is all about. He was king of kings and lord of lords. All power in heaven and earth, he claimed, was his. But he had come not to be served, but to serve, not to kill, but to give eternal life. These were not homilies delivered by a guru who sat on a golden throne. These teachings changed history because they emanated from a life lived in the public arena. Do you see, and isn't it true in the Western world we actually value heroes who have sacrificially served others? Our greatest war hero, I think, uh, uh, his first name, Jack Simpson Kirkpatrick. Simpson and his donkey. I don't know if you know the story. In the first month of the Gallipoli campaign, um, he saved uh, 300 people, 300 wounded soldiers, and brought them back on the donkey until he himself was finally killed. Uh, You go to the Australian War Memorial, there's the statue of Simpson and the donkey. 
or another Australian hero, Fred Hollows, uh, could have made a gazillion dollars as a brilliant eye surgeon uh, and yet dedicated himself to having people in the developed world being able to see. When I checked Wikipedia, they said there's something like a million people in the developing world can now see because of the work Fred Hollows did and what he started. And we, it, it's, Jesus has changed that. But last of all, I wanted to talk to you about the courage of Jesus. The courage of Jesus. I don't know whether you've thought about that. Uh, I, I notice it with him often. Now, okay. Um, the way that Luke's gospel is structured, um, you've got the first two chapters are about the birth of Jesus uh, and the birth of John the Baptist. And then the next three chapters about Jesus' public teaching in Galilee, up in the north. Uh, and the question there really is, who is Jesus? Who is this man that can teach and preach and, and perform these miracles? And it's like you get to look over the shoulder of the disciples as they follow Jesus and try to work out who he is. When you get to chapter 9, they finally say, we understand you are the Messiah, Hebrew way to say it, the Christ, the Greek way to say it, you're God's great king, the one who is promised. And then Jesus begins to tell them what it is that he's come to do. Now, uh, let's go back two slides. Daryl Bock, who's a, an American scholar, wrote a commentary, like a book, about Luke's gospel. It is 2,148 pages. I own it at home. I would have brought it in for you today, but the OHS Committee for City Bible Forum says <laughs> this book can only be carried on a trolley, and it was too hard to get it on the train. So, um... That's what it looks like. Now, Daryl Bock is a very clever man and studied Luke very carefully. Do you see where he splits the commentary into two volumes? And it's not just that he got to page 1,000 and said, let's start a second volume. Chapter 9, verse 51. Okay, chapter 9, verse 51. What's that all about? Well, I'm going to speak to you from Luke's Gospel in one verse today, and you'll notice it's in your outline. Okay, you notice, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That's the way that the uh, New International Version, 2011, puts it. Uh, the New International Version is a good translation. It's not particularly literal, word for word. It'll give you the ideas of the text, and it, it's good, especially if you're not too familiar with the Bible. That's why we use it here at City Bible Forum. There's other translations that are much more literal, word for word, and they're probably a little more accurate, but they're also a little bit kind of clunky. Okay, So they read like a translation. You notice the English Standard Version, if you look at the footnote, the English Standard Version gives you closer to what the original or the literal words are. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Actually, in the original, I dug it up, the, the idea for set his face, it, it's sterizo. The word we get steroids from means um, to strengthen or to make firm. What's the point? He, he made his face firm. He set his face to go and do this, to walk to Jerusalem. You know, today in sport, we've got the expression, uh, get your game face on. What do you do? Well, you, it's, you're psyched, you're in the zone, you're going to go and do it. Now, what was he going to do? Well, he's going to walk from Galilee to Jerusalem 
actually, I've been to Galilee, uh, quite a, a very big inland lake. I was, for my work, I was sent to uh, Israel in 2007, spent about a week there. I was put on a bus with a whole lot of tourists taken up to Galilee. I remember getting off, looking at the lake and looking around thinking, you guys are really lucky that Jesus came here because in terms of tourism, you got nothing. Right. Um, anyway, actually, what was, was always a good thing that coincidentally Jesus did most of his miracles right near souvenir shops. Anyway, that's, I, don't know why, I don't know why he did that, but anyway. Now, by the way, you notice you can still Google these places. These things really happen, folks. This isn't Lord of the Rings or Mordor or Star Trek or whatever. You can go to Nazareth, you can Google it. That's what I did. I Googled Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, today, it takes, it's 169 kilometres because you've got to drive, and you've got to drive over here to the west. In Jesus' day, real places, but no cars, you could just walk straight, and you'd walk one side of the Jordan or the other, so Jesus walked from Galilee uh, down to Jerusalem. Now, it is, I checked there, um, it's 109 kilometres. Why does he need to set his face? Why, what's, the, what's that all about? Well, the structure of Luke, as you keep going... Chapter 9 through to 19, the theologians call it the travel narrative. That's the theologians, not marketing people. Um, but what does it say? It's Jesus walking, travelling down south. Why does he need to set his face? Because he knows when he gets to Jerusalem, he'll be crucified. And then he'll rise again. But he will be crucified. Can you... Can you imagine the courage that that took to walk that far knowing? Have you ever thought about what it was like for Jesus as he, as he grew up, truly human? When did Jesus work out who he is and what had to be done? You've got the Christmas story and the baby in the manger. Babies can't think about anything. I, I read somewhere once the average, the average baby dribbles 141 litres of saliva in the first year. Okay? Can you imagine that? Maybe you don't. About that's it. That's all a baby does, right? Um, by the time Jesus is 12 years old, he's worked out that he's the son of God in a special way as he talks with the older men in the temple. That's in Luke chapter 2. By the time Jesus is 30-something, he's worked out exactly who he is and what he needs to do. But it does mean that for years he lived knowing this, that he would be crucified. And then he deliberately said to her, um, is he afraid? Yeah, when he gets to Jerusalem and the night before he dies, the night before he's betrayed by Judas and then handed over, and he prays that if there's any other way, he might not have to do this. See, courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is being afraid and doing it anyway because it must be done for someone else. And that's courage. Why? Well, the necessity of all this is found in the character of God in that God is just and God says the way that we've treated each other and treated him and damaged each other and, and dishonoured him, that that really matters and justice says there needs to be punishment. And at the same time, God is merciful and wants to forgive. How can God forgive and be merciful and still be just? And the only way is that God himself steps into our world and pays that price. And Jesus knows it. To rescue us, to save us, it has to be done 
that way. And so Jesus comes to show us God, to teach us, to show us compassion, courage, and ultimately, most importantly, to give his life so that we can be forgiven. And what we're going to do, folks, over this year uh, is half of the blocks of City Bible Forum will be topical. So Sam Chance just finished a great series on the four keys to happiness, um, and they'll be on our website and what the Bible, what Jesus taught about that. The other half will be working through the travel narrative, the journey story of Jesus. That's why we've got the little advertising thing, is life more than 10,000 commutes? Because Jesus offers a spiritual journey to follow him and know your creator, a journey with meaning and purpose. Let me finish with uh, reading you a poem or a short article. It's called One Solitary Life. A few years ago, this was so big it had become a cliche, but I think it's kind of drifted out now. Written by James Allen Francis in 1926, so almost 100 years old. One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30, when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book, he never held an office, he never went to college, he never visited a big city, he never travelled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. While dying, his executors, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries, well now twenty, have come and gone. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Now, you may agree or disagree with that. But do you know you can agree with that influence You can understand how he shaped the world. You can understand how he treated the big people and the little people. You can can be inspired by him and still miss the beating heart of Christianity. Because the beating heart of it is this, that you can know him personally. And he promises if we'll trust him and follow him, as he calls people again and again to do in Luke 9 to 19, if we'll trust him and follow him uh, through God's spirit, we can know him personally. And be not just inspired, but forgiven and given the promise of eternal life. I wonder if, uh, if you haven't, you might like to take a copy of Luke's Gospel. We've got a few outside. We'll have more next week. Uh, a copy of Luke's Gospel. And uh, you could read the story of Jesus on the journey. And where would you start? If you wanted to start the travel narrative in, in Luke, what verse would you, what chapter and verse would you start? Someone? Well done. Well, 951. Okay, I'll hand back to Russ. Uh, the first one is, uh, what are the comparisons between Jack and Jesus? Similarities and differences as far as inspiration. Ah, oh, Jack and Jesus. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I think, well, there, there's some. Uh, 
Jack Gibson had time for the little people and he cared for people to actually care to look after them rather than just what they could do for him. That's true. Uh, and he also had the ability to hit the nail on the head in just a sentence or two. People hung on his words. And Jesus had that ability too. I, and in, um, Jack Gibson was a big man, a leader of men. Uh, you lead people through vision and influence and care for them. Vision and nurture, I guess. And you see Jesus and Jack Gibson do that. So, I mean, Jack Gibson used to say things like, uh, Darrell Eastlakes would be commentating the rugby league and he'd say, well, uh, Canterbury's been doing a lot of defending in this half, Jack. And he'd say, there's not much else you can do when you haven't had the ball. <laughs> so, you know, just... Anyway. All right. That leads to the second question, which is really important too. NRL season kicks off this weekend. Is Al showing his support for Cronulla? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think I probably need to be a Rooster supporter this go, season. Yeah, see, right, I yeah. had their time maybe, last. Maybe, maybe okay. From the rugby league, off to the off the rugby league. Yep. Um, based on your title and based on kind of what you're talking about today, was Jesus's main role to just be an inspiration? No. Okay. No. What do you mean? Uh, Jesus fundamentally comes to explain that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. So he came to teach us, to show us what God is like, to live the perfect example of a life, if you like, like that. Uh, but fundamentally, Jesus explains his life in terms of he comes to die in our place to take the penalty that we deserve. And you see that in the way that the Gospels are written, in that maybe a third of each of the Gospels is all about the last week of his life and then his death and resurrection. So it all focuses down to the business end of things. But I think, too, part of the Part of what it means to follow him is to see him, to see his example and to live in gratitude and be inspired by the way that he lived. So if you say, oh, Jesus is just our inspiration, you, you know, you, you, you're getting the, um, only getting part of the, a little part of the picture. Right? Okay. Well, that kind of goes to, I think, going kind of the second question that kind of comes up from this is... Uh, because based on all the different, you hear all the different speakers, the motivational speakers that are out there, and listening to what you're saying that we're going to be kind of traveling through the travel narratives, lack of a better term maybe, was Jesus more than just a motivational speaker? Uh, oh, yes. Well, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to do today is to get you to just look from a different angle. Um, you, you say Jesus to a lot of people, and they kind of, right? You know, or I'm sure he did good work, but it's like Captain Cook, you know, like he did good work, but... What's there to get excited about? It's when you actually really deal with the real Jesus. He is inspirational. But I also think Jesus is God stepped into our world and our only hope of avoiding the judgment of God and finding eternal life. Now, that's, that's more than just an inspiration. Um, that, you know, that, that's, Jesus divides people too. There's very sharp edge on Jesus. You know, like it's very hard to kind of be neutral. Either he really is the son of God, as he said, or, you know, there's something seriously wrong. Okay. Yeah. Anybody else have any questions? From, or I have one more question up here, but anybody have any questions that they just want to ask or push back on some of the things that Al's been sure. talking about today? We do allow for that, just so you know, you can kind of push back. The forum. Yeah. Well, because the last question actually goes to is there, is there someone besides just the Bible, as far as a good book or website that you can go to to kind of look at, maybe studying more about the inspiration of Jesus or life? Uh, 
Christianity.com is, uh, is, you know, is a website you can go to. I always say to people, the best thing to do is actually go and read the words of Jesus yourself. Um, we've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John out there. Uh, grab a Luke's Gospel. We'll have more of them next week. That's, that's the way to go. I think his words carry power within itself. If you'd like information about how do we know that we really have his words, who wrote it, when, that kind of thing, we can give you the DVD, the booklet about that, that kind of thing. But that's the best thing to do. Uh, or if you actually, if you'd like someone from City Bible Forum to uh, sit down with you, read the Bible one to one, ask you questions, we can do that too. That's yeah. what we're here for. Yeah, we have a feedback form inside of your outlink. If that's something you're really mm. interested in, please just put down your feedback on the feedback form your name, and uh, we definitely would be willing to uh, get you connected with somebody to be able to do that. Actually, we have one more question because we got we got one minute. Um, is uh, why was Jesus crucified in Jerusalem instead of his hometown? Yeah, good question. Um, Jerusalem is fundamentally, I think, where God promised to meet with people and where the temple is and where the sacrifices were offered. And I think that is why, in fact, Jerusalem, uh, Jesus, when they warned Jesus in, uh, earlier in Luke's Gospel and say, you know, King Herod uh, in the middle of the country is, kind of, is after you, Jesus says, go tell Herod, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. So I think that's the point. It's the idea Jerusalem was particularly where God and people met and where sacrifices were offered. And Jesus is offered as, at Passover time, as the lambs die uh, in Passover, Jesus is the Passover lamb. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.